Well, hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas, and uh, it's, it's good to be together again, so close after Christmas, and to celebrate and to just reflect, of course, Christmas reminds us that a year, another year, crazy it is to think of it, another year is coming to an end, and yet right around the corner is New Year's, and a brand new year is beginning, and while the world begins to form their resolutions, all those things they want to tweak and change, and how they want to better themselves and better their lives over the course of this next year, one of the things that we have traditionally done in the life of our church is we've just taken a moment to pause and reflect upon uh, an individual in particular named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards is one of the most formidable theologians ever to walk the face of this earth, certainly the most formidable theologian and pastor to come out of North America in the last 300 years. He lived in the early and mid-1700s, and he wrote countless works, countless theological treaties, and things that have been such, of such immense value to the church of Jesus Christ. Even today, uh, dissertations are written on him and his works. Blogs are formed around him and his works. I mean, you can't go anywhere in the kind of reformed evangelical world without knowing something of Jonathan Edwards. And one of the things that he's known for most of all is for his 70 resolutions. At the age of 19 years old, Jonathan Edwards, he sat down over the course of about a year and a half and he began to pen what would be called his 70 resolutions. These resolutions would form really the, the backbone for his spiritual life, for the goals and pursuits of his life. They're fascinating to read and certainly when you read them now, to think that they came from a 19 year old is just astounding. Jonathan Edwards, it's helpful to understand, before he became this pillar in the evangelical world, before he became this, in one sense, legendary figure in the evangelical world, Jonathan Edwards was simply Jonathan Edwards. And at one point in his life, as a young man, he determined that he wanted more. He wanted more for himself, he wanted more of God, he wanted more spiritual progress in his life, he wanted more of God's glory to captivate his heart, his mind, his attention, his affections. He longed for the glory of God to be manifested in every area of his life. He longed to experience the glory of God in his own personal life. Edwards expresses this in his very first resolution on the heels of the preface of his resolutions. Here's what he says. It says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration. George Marsden has written an incredible biography on Jonathan Edwards. He observes this, he says, Jonathan directed his resolutions toward plugging every gap that would allow distraction from what he saw as his only worthy activity to glorify God. He wanted a more fruitful life. New Year's is a, a time where we so often pause and kind of hit the reset button. We look back over the past year, we look forward to a new year, and many of us look towards our past year and we celebrate what God has done, but we look towards a new year and hopefully our hearts are all longing for more of what God can do. 
longing for more of God, longing for more of his glory. Jonathan Edwards wanted a more fruitful life, and I want to challenge you this morning, and ask you this morning, is that what you are looking for? Are you longing for a more fruitful life this year? That's what I want. That's what I desperately want. I want a more fruitful year. Specifically, I want more fruit in my own spiritual walk. I want more fruit in my personal life. I want more fruit in my marriage. I want more fruit in my family as we walk together with God. I want more fruit in my relationships. I want more fruit in the life of our church. And I'm praying for a season of greater fruitfulness this year in my own heart as I am for the life of the church. And I want to ask you to do the same. So naturally, if that is to be our objective, we need to ask what does that look like and how does that happen? As I thought more about what this year should look like in my own life, my heart was continually drawn back to this chapter in the, gos- in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 15. So why don't you take your Bibles and turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers, I believe, are going to get a workout and walk up the stairs. And you can feel free to slip your hand up in the air. We want to make sure a Bible makes its way into the, your hand. If you got your Bibles, turn to John 15. It's a familiar passage and one that we've even been through before as a church. But I think it's really fitting because the entire first 11 verses is dictated by this simple goal that we might bear much fruit in our lives for Jesus Christ. Let's read it together and then we'll dive in. This is Jesus speaking and he says this to his disciples. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Again, the the main thrust of this passage is bearing fruit. That's at the very heart of what Jesus is communicating And fruit bearing in the Christian life is critical because as we see in this text, it is the greatest manifestation of gospel power in the life of a believer. In fact, it is to be the identifying mark of a true believer. In fact, the the person who claims to be a follower of Christ but has no fruit in their life is shown here to be a false branch, one that's not truly attached to the vine. One, in other words, that's not really a believer at all. So if we are aiming at more fruit this year, and I trust that's your heart's desire, notice this, it's gonna take four things. The first thing is this, more discerning. 
more discerning. Verses 1 and 2, again, Jesus gives this metaphor for the Christian life and for the fruitful Christian life. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is making it clear that he is looking for fruit in the lives of his children. And so this is first a call to self-examination. If you bear the name Jesus Christ, if you proclaim and profess the name Jesus Christ, then the call for you first is to do a bit of self-examination, to inspect your life, and to be looking for fruit. We're called first to be fruit inspectors. Again, if there is no fruit, it shows that you don't have a connection to the vine. It's vital that we understand what fruit looks like. There's much disagreement about what fruit looks like, even in the Christian life, and we're prone to go to things like external evidences only. You know, we run to things like maybe church attendance or the amount of times we read the Bible or how often we pray or some of the good things that we do in our lives, and and that for us is how we determine fruit. Well, that's a danger in assuming that it's all about external things that we do. You have to remember that in the background of this section is Judas himself. Judas looms in the back of all of this context, and he serves as one, remember, who looked like he was attached to the vine. Remember that? I mean, he was virtually indistinguishable from all the other disciples. In fact, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, not a single disciple turned and looked at Judas. Not one of them thought, based on the external evidences, that somehow Judas would be the betrayer. In fact, they thought just the opposite. They thought that Judas was clearly in the club. Judas serves as An example, and and in fact, throughout the years of the church, it's been what's called a Judas branch. One that looks like it's attached, but as time goes on, it proves that in fact it is not attached at all. It was superficially attached. Now the other danger is to assume that it's simply or only inner qualities. That it's all internal fruit that we're looking for. And in reality, really, there's a, a kind of a mixture of the two at work because anything that, it was, that is genuinely and truly internal fruit will manifest itself in some kind of external fruit. And if you have external fruit only, that doesn't mean that you have internal fruit. It doesn't necessitate that. But it's guaranteed that you do, if you have the internal evidence and fruit of God in your life, that it will manifest itself in outward expressions. So we're looking for both. This requires great discernment in the life of a believer, and the fruit that Jesus speaks of, really, here's what it is. Listen, church, listen. The fruit that Jesus is looking for is the reproduction of the life of the vine in the branch. Jesus is looking for the fruit of his life in us, the character and life of Jesus is to be formed in our lives. You say, well, what does that look like exactly? Well, Galatians 5, and 23, it'll be on the screen behind me here, gives us a picture of the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our lives. Look at this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against these things there is no law. These are the internal evidences of the Spirit of God in our lives. This really is a description of the character and life of Jesus Christ, isn't it? So how, how do we identify this? Well, I love one of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, resolution number 60. Listen to what he says. Look at the carefulness in, in which he examined his own life and how he was constantly thinking through this framework of looking for fruit. He says, resolved, whenever my feelings begin to appear in the least out of order, when I am conscious of the least uneasiness within or the least irregularity without, there's the internal and external, I will then subject myself to the strictest examination. You see what he's saying there? Whenever something doesn't seem right, whenever my conscience is convicting me or accusing me, or I believe the Spirit of God is, is convicting me of something in my life, maybe the way I'm thinking or, or the way I'm acting, or, or whenever I'm able to see the way I'm responding in a situation externally, and I, and I understand that that's not normal, it's not right, in that moment I'm going to pause and I'm going to examine my life, I'm going to examine what's happened, and here's the implication. He's going to trace it back to its root. He's going to figure out how it got there and why it got there. Here's what you and I can do. Let me just give you a few ways in which you can examine your own life. Look for patterns, not for, not for perfection. Sometimes when we examine our lives, we kind of look at our lives with a, um, a microscope, and if we do that too often, oftentimes the only thing we see are terrible blemishes. Isn't that true? If we just look at our lives in kind of these short windows, this little picture of our lives, oftentimes it's not very pretty. And, and so one of the things that we need to do if we're examining fruit in our lives, we need to zoom out a little bit and we need to look. Is there a pattern of fruit in my life? Fruit happens over time. It doesn't happen overnight. It bursts forth on the tree somewhat slowly. It begins to ripen the aroma of ripe fruit is something, again, that takes time. Try this as well. Look in your relationships. Look in your relationships. That, that's the primary place where we can determine these attributes, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Are we growing? Think about this. All of these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, all of those things will be taking place not on our own on an island. They take place in the context of our relationships. And so just look at the way you respond in your relationships. Look at the people you love most. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're just interested in, in knowing what areas of fruit are lacking in your life, just ask the person that you say you love most. They'll tell you, I promise. <laughs> be kind. Who we truly are is most reflected in the relationships with those whom we love most. Notice this next, if you want to examine your life, look at desires, not duties. 
And, and here's what I mean by that. Again, this is, this is a guard, a warning against looking at just the mere externals in your life. All, all the things that you are duty-bound to do, all of the responsibilities that you have and that you, you could call good works if you wanted, you have to kind of look past those and look at the desires of your heart. The scripture speaks so much of the passions of our hearts, the desires of our hearts. Ask the question, why do I do what I do? And again, let me just put the figure of Judas before you. Right? Judas is the picture-perfect example of this. He looked the part. He did all the right things. He was duty-bound to Christ, but his desires, as we see unfolding in the Gospels, were so selfish. He was a self-absorbed hypocrite. Everything he did, listen, from the beginning to the end of his relationship with Jesus, was all about him. It was all about him. It was all about what kind of power he could receive, what kind of benefits he could receive by walking close to Jesus. And the moment he didn't get what he wanted out of the relationship is the moment he determined, I'm out of here. How often can we act like Jesus? The desires of our heart are not for the glory of God, they're for the glory of Ask, why do I do what I do? Now, Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. My hope is this, that you leave this, and I wanna put some feet on this for us, okay? I want us to leave here, and I want all of us to be thinking about the things that we want more of this year, where we want to grow in. You know, what are those things that we're gonna work on? And, and so maybe, if, can we put the, the scripture back on the, the screen there? Do you mind, Matt? Thank you. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Listen, so, so often when we get bombarded with truth, we can be overwhelmed. Isn't that true? Anybody with me? You know, you, know, you know that conference experience where you go to a conference and you're like, I'm gonna do everything. That'll destroy you. It's not possible. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Just, just look at this list and pick one or two, maybe three things that you want to focus on this year. All of these things are good and all of these things are necessary, but you know as you look at this list, is it love that I struggle with most? Is it joy that I'm not ha finding in my relationship with God? Is it peace? Do I, I have a sense of anxiety and unrest? Am I worried all the time? Am I fearful? Do I struggle with kindness, with goodness and faithfulness? Is gentleness lacking in my life? Is self-control? Which one of these two or three things can you hone in on this year and say this, Lord? Would you help me discern more of this or where this is lacking in my life? And God, would you help me with this this year? All right, how do we get it? How, how do we get more fruit in our lives? Well, we need more discernment. We need to be evaluating our lives and we need to, to have a healthy view of ourselves. Secondly, notice this, more disciplining. More disciplining. You'll notice that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, look at this word here, he prunes. He prunes, why? Why does he prune it? So that it might bear more fruit. Now, I don't know much about gardening, that's certainly not my specialty, but I understand this from my reading and, and research, that, it, that if a plant is to grow healthy and strong and, and, and for it to, to have its maximum output of fruitfulness, it needs to be pruned, it needs to be cared for throughout the course of a year. And, and in fact, with, with vines in particular, if you think of vineyards, there are three critical seasons to pruning that take place in the life of every vineyard. 
Without getting into the details, here's what you need to know. A lot of times the pruning has to take place because there are things that grow on the vines, they're called suckers, and, and they, they don't actually flourish into anything that bears fruit, but they sit on the vine and they suck the sap, that nourishing sap that's intended to, to help bear fruit and produce fruit. They steal it away from the branches and the parts of the branches that can actually bear fruit. And uh, any good vine dresser, and here obviously the picture here is that God himself is the vine dresser, comes along and knows that you have to cut those, those suckers off there so that the sap runs straight to the fruit-bearing parts of the plant. Just note this, that fruitfulness in our lives is going to require some cutting. It's going to require some discipline at the hand of God. And, and listen, cutting and disciplining always involved a measure of pain. It involves a, a cutting away of anything that gets in the way of our righteousness, of anything that gets in the way of our obedience, of our Christ-likeness, of anything that would prove detrimental to the most fruitful harvest of our lives. See, how, how does that look? What is the disciplining that often comes into our lives or what's the pain that often comes into our lives? Well, one way is the discipline that comes through trials, through suffering, and through persecution. Sometimes suffering and, and uh, persecution and those kind of things are a result and trials are a result of our own sin. They're consequences to our own sin. We've all experienced that. But there are other times in the life of a believer where God will bring those things into our lives with a greater purpose of purging sin from our lives, of squeezing our hearts and, and showing us the things that are in there that are toxic and that need to be dealt with. Circumstances and trials, they have a funny way of bringing out what's really in our heart, don't they? They squeeze us in such an important way and God will use them in a powerful way to change and transform us. And you can just jot this down, that pain produces. Pain produces is one of the primary laws of spiritual growth. And, you know, we use this phrase all the time when it comes to working out or anything that's difficult, right? No pain, no gain. Sadly, that's often the way it is in the Christian life. Sometimes pain will come and if we face it properly and we understand God's purposes in it, we can actually come out the other end growing and stronger and bearing more fruit. I think it's helpful to understand that this means, when, when God talks about the pruning in our lives, it means this, it means to have our bad habits stripped away. It means to have our priorities reordered. It means to have our values changed. Look, whatever is hindering us from spiritual growth must go. Do you believe that? Whatever, anything that is hindering you bearing more fruit, you, and listen, and in bearing fruit, remember, you give more glory to God. Anything that hinders those ends needs to be cut off. It must go. And this must be not only the understanding, but the commitment of a follower of Jesus Christ. There's God's disciplining that takes place in our lives, and, and I like to think of it, there's kind of two disciplining in, in two ways and in two different senses, right? And Hebrews 12 makes it clear that God disciplines every son whom he loves, and remember that that is all to lead towards greater holiness. But I want you to know this too, the Bible, Paul says to Timothy, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
And he, by that he means, you know, not a father or a mother disciplining their child. He means like exercise and he gives the analogies of running a race and, and you know, preparing to box in a match and how every good athlete, right, he, he disciplines, he beats his body, he makes it his slave. You see, Charles Spurgeon said, one of my favorite quotes is, is he says this, he says, um, either God can humble you or you can humble yourself. When God humbles you, it's painful. When you humble yourself, it's, it's painful as well, but it's a, it's a self-inflicted pain with great purpose in your mind, right? Every athlete knows that he trains hard and he gives up certain things in his or her life to further themselves, to win a prize. They see the sacrifices and the pain as being completely worth it. And I want to encourage you this year. I believe this year, I'm hoping, like I'm hoping I'm not going to be receiving more disciplining from the hand of God this year. Amen. Anybody with me? Yeah? Like this. But here's what I want. You want to avoid the disciplining hand of God? Well, then you need more discipline in your life. You need to have more discipline in yourself for the purpose of godliness. So while, while many people this year are committing and resolving to lose weight, anybody here with me? All right, I got a few pounds to shed. Right? What do they do? What do they do to lose weight? They change their diet. They cut out things that are harmful to them achieving their goals of weight loss. And so they cut out things like a bad sugar. They cut out things like bad carbs and bad fats. They change not only what they eat, they change when they eat, and they change how much they eat. And while everybody is committing right now to lose the unwanted pounds, let's commit right here and right now to lose some unwanted spiritual pounds. Amen? All right. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here's the pruning people, here's the disciplining yourself, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I mean, let's get rid of the, the ankle weights, and let's get rid of the barbells that are on our shoulders. You can't run with endurance the race that God has set before you with all of these encumbrances, with all of these hindrances, with all of this sin that is bogging you down. And so ask this simple question, what needs to be cut out of my life this year to affect greater growth, to bring about greater fruitfulness? What, what are the suckers in your life? What are those things right now? Just, just think, okay? What are the things right now stealing your time, your spiritual energy, and your spiritual effectiveness? Maybe it's too much of a good thing. Maybe it's too much entertainment that you've devoted yourself to. Maybe you're just obsessed with watching and binge-watching television shows. Maybe you cannot control yourself when it comes to the internet and the time just seems to waste away. Maybe social media has just captured your heart. Maybe Pinterest is ruining your life. Uh-huh. Husbands, you with me? Okay. I love you, honey. How are you? 
Maybe it's hobbies that are, again, they're good, but they just consume so much of your time. Maybe it's, maybe it's things that are not good. Maybe it's substance abuse. Maybe alcohol is controlling your life. Maybe you've slipped into drug use. Maybe there are sins in your life that you are living in. Maybe you're in illicit relationships and unhealthy relationships. Maybe you're watching pornography or reading romance novels that you have no business reading that are polluting your mind. And all of these things and so much more, you, you know, you know your own heart. I don't know your own heart. I mean, the Spirit of God right now is likely convicting you of something. And that's the thing or the things that literally, listen, they are stealing your life away from you. They're owning your time, they're owning your energies, and you have nothing left over to give to God. In fact, when you come to God, there's nothing you want to give to Him because you've wasted it all in places where you should never have been wasting it. Verse three, Jesus says already, this is interesting, remember he's speaking to his, his disciples here, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Well, how does that work? He's talking about pruning, you know, cleaning, get the picture here, he's cleaning the branches by cutting off what does not belong. And then he says to his disciples, already you are clean. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he's speaking of their positional cleanliness. In other words, they've been saved. They believe in Jesus. And so they have been cleaned. They've been cleaned by the blood of Christ. And for them, it's a future cleansing that's going to take place. And it's also just positional. It's happened in one sense in God in eternity past. But the implication here is is really helpful for all of us. The implication is that we all need to work hard at remaining clean. If you're saved in Christ, cleansing work of Jesus Christ. But listen, every day we walk out into the world and we dabble in sin and we're surrounded by sin and and we get dirty, we get mucked up by the world. And you'll remember just a, a chapter or two back in John chapter 13, you remember when Jesus is sitting around the table and he begins to stoop and wash their feet and he, he gets to Peter and Peter's like, Lord, how, I will never let you wash my feet, God. You can't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, if I don't clean your feet, you got no part of me, Peter. And Peter's like, well, give me a shower then. Like, just do all of me. And Jesus' response is, it's so fascinating. Jesus said to him in John 13, 10, he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Think about that, that's Judas, right? For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Let me just just say, I, I feel the need to speak to some of you in here who can resonate with Judas more than you like to admit. And for you, beginning a new year, is not about getting more of God, it's about getting God. It's about knowing God. My fear is that in every, and I believe this is true in every church, listen, every church, and I believe it's true, some people in here, you're playing the part, you look the role, you say the right things, and then you know, you know, deep down inside, that your heart is very far from God, that you've never really submitted to God, that you've not had any desire to submit to God, that you're, you're all about yourself, you're all about your own righteousness. It's more about what people think of you than what God thinks of you. 
And I just want to say to you, if that's you today, now is the time to get clean. Now is the time to acknowledge that you have been a self-righteous hypocrite and don't be like Judas and don't, with remorse, lose your soul. Come to him and see his mercy and his grace and know that even though you've walked much of your life as a hypocrite, he can take you and cleanse you and he can make you the genuine, real deal thing. That's why he went to the cross. He died and he rose again that if you believe in him, you might be cleansed of all of your sin. You might have everlasting life and that's exactly what he wants for you. For those of us who are Christians, we just need this reminder. Every day we need God's word to wash over us and to sanctify us, to cleanse us anew every day. God will use suffering to purge us and he will use his word to prune us, to cut away what hinders growth. And I've heard it said like this before, either sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. And here's what God wants for us. God wants us this year to have more disciplining taking place in our lives. Whether it be from the hand of God or from our own pursuits, that is to be the goal because we're after more fruit. Thirdly, note this, we need more depending. We need more depending. Verses four through seven paint this picture. Abide in me. And you'll notice this word abide just comes up over and over again. In fact, it comes up 10 times in the next six verses. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am, in the, vine, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Certainly, it's hard work, but I don't want you, this bearing fruit is hard work, but I want to give the impression that it's all dependent upon us. It's not all about our own effort. In fact, if that's where you land, then you're in great danger of becoming a a legalist and a self-righteous hypocrite. Jonathan Edwards said this in resolution number 68. He said, resolved to confess frankly to myself all that which I find in myself, either infirmity or sin, and if it what concerns religion also to confess the whole case to God, and I love this, and implore needed help. The way we continue to tap into our source and to allow the, the sap of the life of Jesus Christ to run thick into our life to abide. The word abide, it literally, if I could paint a, a word picture for you, it means to take up residence. And I think this is a helpful picture because I think many of us treat God and our relationship with him more like it's a summer home or a vacation spot we go to every once in a while to get some recovery and some rest. But the picture is this, it is to be for us our home, the place where we live, the place where we reside, not the place where we retreat to every once in a while, The place where we do life is to be with Jesus Christ. The image here of the vine and the branches shows that there there are no independent, self-sufficient branches. It's just not possible for a branch to be broken off and survive apart from the vine. That's where all of the life comes from. And so he's teaching us here that the relationship with him is fundamental to fruit bearing. I think that if we take this in context and 
Jesus is reminding them that he's about to leave them, and when he does, he's going to send the comforter to them. I think in this greater context of the passage, it's helpful to understand that this is deeply connected to being filled with the Holy Spirit. We've already seen that abiding in Christ produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit, all of the, those fruits that are evidenced in our hearts and in our lives. But we are constantly to keep up our dependence in communion with Jesus Christ. This is to be the lifelong pursuit of the believer. And as a result, we find every supply we need in him. So much so that Jesus says in verse 5 that apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything hinges in the Christian life upon this verse and upon acknowledging this truth. You will have no genuine fruit in your life without first acknowledging this, that apart from me, I can do nothing. And I think that's an interesting statement because there are many things that we can do without Christ, isn't there? We can earn a living without Christ. We can raise a family without Christ. We can be hospitable. We can be gracious. We can even be very moral people. It's possible to serve in ministries without Christ. It's even possible to be a pastor of a church without abiding in Christ. So what does Jesus mean? Well, he means that we cannot bear spiritual fruit apart from him. We can't provide anything of any eternal, significant, lasting value apart from a full, absorbing relationship with him. We can hang fruit onto our lives like ornaments on a Christmas tree, but the real fruit of his character comes through the vine itself. We can't truly be loving, patient, faithful, or holy without him. This requires us to be consciously and intentionally dependent upon Christ. You say, well, what does this look like? How do I abide more faithfully in my life this year? What will more dependence look like for me this year? And let me give you just a few things. First is this, keep your head bowed before him. Bowing throughout the scriptures is, is acknowledged as a posture of humility. That's why we bow our heads when we pray. We're acknowledging our humble dependence upon God, and I would submit to you that there is nothing more valuable in your Christian life than an attitude, an increasingly cultivated attitude of humility. God says this, that he opposes the proud. He is constantly against those who are proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He's on the side of those who are humble. The meek will inherit the earth. God wants us to be humble, not self-reliant, not self-sufficient, not prideful and arrogant, not self-absorbed. All of those are expressions of great pride. Instead, he wants us to keep our head bowed before him in humility. In humility, it's been said, is not thinking less of yourself. You know, it's not this woe is me attitude. You got your head down all the time. It's, it's not It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Abiding involves growing in our sense of weakness. Secondly, notice this, you wanna really fight for more dependence in your life, keep your eyes on the Lord. It's easy to take your eyes off the Lord as we walk through this life, and I think the best picture of this is Peter as he walks in faith out to Jesus across the water. The moment the waves begin to capture his attention, his head turns away from Jesus, his eyes turn towards the circumstances of his life, and he begins to sink down. 
Jesus grabs his hand and pulls him up, oh you of little faith. Well, our dependence will be expressed in faith, and in faith we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ, and the circumstances of this world should not knock us to and fro, but we should be anchored and steadfast, immovable, because we have our eyes fixed upon the rock Jesus Christ. Amen? We keep our eyes there. We know our feet are on stable ground. Try this third, keep your face in the word. And keep your head bowed before him. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your face in the word. Our abiding in Christ is conditional upon our exposure to the word of God. And he talks repeatedly about the words in this section that he has spoken to them. Already they are clean because of the word that he has spoken. And the idea is this. They have heard his words and they obey his words. They know his words. His words control their lives. And listen, what we have here in front of us are the word of, is the word of God, the words of Jesus Christ. And if this is the thing that captures our hearts, if this is the thing that we keep our face in, then it's, it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee that we will walk not in pride, but in humble dependence as we seek the face of Jesus in this book. Let me ask you this. What's your plan this year for the word of God? Do you have one? Take some time today just to think about how you're going to make your way through, through the Word of God. Are you going to get a reading plan that takes you through the Word of God in a year? Or maybe you're a little more aggressive than that and you go through it a couple times this year? Do something. Plan for it. What about prayer? And that's the last thing here. You know, prayer is the ultimate expression of our dependence upon God. And so keep your face in the Word, but this, keep your knees on the ground. I, I sat, just, just maybe a moment of transparency here this morning, I sat this morning and I was doing my devotions before the Lord and I was reflecting on some of these truths here and God was convicting me of some things and I, I had to confess to the Lord that there were moments, there were days this year where I did not get up and fall to the ground and say, God, I need you. And, and I, I've committed to the Lord and, and I'm praying that he keeps me steadfast. That's my prayer is that every day this year I get up and the first thing I do is I fall to my knees and say, Lord, not me, you I need. Not my strength, Lord, your strength. This is the greatest act of dependence. Prayerlessness says, God, I don't need you. And my heart's desire, especially this year and every year after, my heart's desire for you is that your life screams, Lord, I need you. Apart from you, I can do absolutely nothing. Lastly, and quickly here, we need more delighting. You want to bear more fruit this year? There needs to be more delighting taking place. And this is real quick, so hang on here. Look at the results of not abiding in verse 6, first of all. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. What is that a picture of? That is a picture of final judgment. That's the statement that that person was never saved. Again, that Judas branch, they're, they're, they're ripped off and because they're only superficially attached, they're thrown into the fire. They face ultimate judgment because they did not really know him. You know, many people will stand before him on that day. Lord, Lord, I, I knew you. There are some people who are so deceived, they will plead with God at the final judgment and say, I, I know you, God. Look what I did in your name. And, and think about what they say. I, I prophesied in your name. I did many mighty works in your name. I cast out many 
demons in your name? I mean, very impressive religious things. And God will look at them and say, depart from me, you who work lawless. I, this is the most stunning words in all of scripture. I never knew you. You contrast that versus the abiding in verse seven. Look at this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, you have a God-empowered and a God-blessed life when you abide in him. Because listen, listen, it is his words that are saturating you, his will that is dominating you, his glory that is leading you. And so as you live with those things controlling you, God says what you ask, will be to me and I will delight in giving it to you. My power will be in you. My blessing will be upon you. Verse eight, by this my father is glorified. Again, that's the ultimate aim in all of this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You abide and you have a God-glorifying life. You have a fruit-bearing life. And verses nine and 10, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Listen to this, church. This is great news. You abide in Christ and you will have a love-filled life. You will know and experience the love of God in your life. As you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And that, that's an amazing reality that we would have his love filling our lives, that we would know the love of God in Christ Jesus, not just know it, but we would really know it. And then lastly, look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You may have a joy-filled life. This is a life that is filled with delighting in God. You know, we all pursue happiness. Every person pursues happiness in their own way. And that's actually, by the way, a very biblical teaching. We are designed by God to know and to pursue ultimate happiness. We just pursue it in the wrong places and we pursue it in the wrong ways. But I want more delighting in my life and the key to that is to pursue more fruit. So this year I'm asking God for more. I'm asking for more fruit. I'm asking for more of him. I'm asking for more of his glory. I'm asking for more of his power to be made perfect in my weakness. I'm asking this for me and I'm asking this for you. How about you? As you look towards this new year, Is it your desire to bear more fruit for Jesus Christ? Will this be a year of more fruit for you, for me, for this church? And may God receive more and more glory because of it.